Lindsay Lerman. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? That's good. I'm doing pretty well, too. And um, this is Jennifer Jazz speaking, and welcome to another episode of Letters Off Paper. Tonight, I'm with Lindsay Lerman, who is the author of I'm From Nowhere, um, which was published in 2019, right? Yep, that's right. Okay, by Clash Books. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, you know, I have a lot of questions about your book. Um, <laughs> oh. I, I shouldn't be laughing because this is not a funny book. Um, the reason, <laughs> no, I mean, the reason I'm laughing is because death makes you uncomfortable. And yes. so we respond in, in ways that are awkward and inappropriate to, to manage the discussion. Mm -hmm. We're not really allowed to talk about it enough to really feel comfortable with it, which is why which is why this book is a difficult read because you're just really confronting it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, yes. But actually I like the, I like the laughter response. I think it's totally fine and appropriate. Like I, I, to me, actually, there are some very funny moments in the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just kind of like Gallo's humor and um, I like that emotional intensity you know, that we, that we achieve when we're really, really deep in grief and mm. we sort of, you know, like I think a phrase I use throughout the book is like feeling the bottom fall out. Like those moments when you feel the bottom fall out, you know, everything that you can rely on is gone or, you know, all the systems and structures that make up our world become visible and it all seems just so completely absurd you know, like laughter is a perfectly normal response to that because it's like, you know, you, you see the absurdity of everything and uh, you're just like, what, what the fuck do I do? And you just laugh. Okay, you make that argument well. <laughs> okay, you, you make the argument well. But I could never pull that off, you know, if I, if I had been, and I'm 60 years old, I don't have any more to bury. It, when you reach my age, it's all just past tense, right? But I, yeah, but I couldn't, you know, um, I couldn't make that argument to anyone older than me, you know, and um, mm. and yet I I feel 100%, you know, what you're saying. Um, there's something very um, inhibiting and and crushing about the rituals, not just the loss of the person, but I'm not sure if we need to continue the silence that we have around death to the extent that we, you know, that we do in the in the West at least. You know, um, yeah, we just don't like this book is difficult to read because you're talking about death page after page after page after page. Right. <laughs> and no, it's difficult yeah. to read because who who who's had that experience? I can't think of any people who've had the opportunity to talk about death in length. Right. Right. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, people have asked me a lot why I why I wrote a book about death. Um and I don't really have a good answer other than the fact that it does fascinate me. Um, you know, the beginning of life and the end of life, uh, these, these moments are, I think, eternally fascinating for humans, but especially for me as someone who wants to understand the human condition. <clears throat> but um, I also really like grief stories. You know, like uh, I've always been drawn to grief stories as a kid. I loved stories about death. Um, 
I suppose I've never really been afraid of talking or thinking about death. And uh, it's kind of a lifelong goal to, you know, achieve a, a good death, which means like, you know, ideally, um, you know, giving into it, being comfortable with it, not fighting it when you know that it's coming. If you're, if you're, if you're lucky enough to know in advance or maybe unlucky enough, you know, it depends. Mm. But um, I like grief stories. I like thinking about death, talking about death. And uh, one thing that people have, I've noticed in the reception of the book that a lot of people have focused most of their attention on the death of the individual person that sort of kicks the whole story off. But to me, the, the really crucial death and grief that I, that I personally needed to work through as I wrote the book was the climate catastrophe death and grief. Um, because that I find is, you know, we just, we don't know how to process that and talk about that at all. And it's happening at such a scale and at such a speed, you know, that like, I, I guess um, maybe I just, maybe I just did, there's too much death in the book. And so people are just holding on to the, you know, the individual person's death as the, as the focus of the story. Well, it's a good time. It's a good time to encourage discussions around death. It's a good time to bring it up. Um, in many ways, change and death are like synonymous on, you know, in, in, the, in, the, big, in the big picture. And mm -hmm. we need to learn how to navigate the constant change and the, and the deaths that we, that we, we experience when things change. Um, yeah. I think that's why the United States feels so crazy because things come, things are born and die very quickly. And yes. it, it, it just creates a kind of trauma and there's no discussion. There's no acknowledgement that there's like, a, and to use a really cliche term of vibe, you can pick up a vibe when you're, I'm not in the U S but you can pick up a vibe over there. It's like a really strong vibe that people are mourning on it, like a lot mm -hmm. of people are in mourning and not about mm -hmm. one specific death. No, they're mourning a lot of different things, trying to grapple with loss on a large scale. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your book is timely. And, um, you know, again, it, I guess it urges us to confront a topic that makes us uncomfortable, but that we're better off confronting than not confronting, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I I don't know if I'm <clears throat> crazy or just very different than most people, but I think nothing but good can come of lots of honest and frank and difficult discussion about death and end of life stuff. Um but I I respect that a lot of people will avoid it. Um I wouldn't I won't say avoid it like the plague because we've learned but people don't necessarily avoid the plague like the plague. Mm. But, um, you know, I just think, why not? Like, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a fascinating and crucial part of life that is the end of life. and Especially it, the way that you handle it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Why am I laughing? Let me, for anyone who's listening, let me explain. Okay. This book begins with the protagonist, Claire, a young woman whose husband who was also young, has passed, and she's, you know, she's mourning him, and she's in a funeral with family and friends, and she's sitting in a room um, 
and she's with people in there. I think this is, I wrote something down. It says cards, flowers, photos, packages, all small or, or large tokens, all sad manifestations of solidarity, understanding, condolence, that terrible word that just rolls around the mouth, colon, condolences. Um, and so the reason why it's a little bit crazy is because she begins, you know, describing a pretty conventional scene, you know, people gathering to mourn the loss of someone. But then her mind goes off on these very, like, Hitchcock, like, you know, <laughs> like an Hitchcock thriller in her head. And, we're, and, we're, and, you know, we're involved in that crazy ride that she takes us on. Um, yeah, it's a psycho thriller in some ways, you know. <sighs> Oh, I love that. No one's described it that way. Well, that, that. that's what it was I for me. That. That's, what, <laughs> that's what it was for me. Um, and again, okay, th- there's an early scene where your deceased husband, John's mother, holds your hand. Um, and in that scene, again, you, you bring to life that moment at a funeral where, you know, you're embracing someone. And you're both, you know, just looking at each other with a sigh, with a sense of resignation or sadness or whatever. Um, she looks at you, you look at her, you cry, you describe the, 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 the you know, the strangled sobs. Um, <laughs> and, um, but from that moment on, it, that's where things kind of switch up um, because you run into, I think, friends and stuff like that guys you know that were (laughs) mutual friends and then we enter into this interesting drama between you and these two men that's very (laughs) it's very erotic um i thought of you know what i thought of the movie um eternal sunshine of a spotless mind with oh really yeah yeah. that's what i kept thinking of because it's just so trippy and you just kind of leap from like weird fantasy to reality and it's not overtly you know sexual in some kind of way that you would say is raunchy yeah. or anything no it feels very much real like real life occurrences are all kind of collaged together in your head as you experience life and death you go on this trip you know mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. thank you complex trip um mm-hmm. is this at all like inspired by something you really went through no, not really. I mean, I have, I've had people who were really close to me die. Um, but, you know, like I, I am married. I have a partner. He's still alive. Okay. Um, you know, he didn't die. And all these men did not show up on the scene to, like, try to scoop me up and get me, you know, drawn into their, um, their dramas. Um, so, no, in that respect, it's not, it's not based on any actual events. Uh, but, you know... It's so it's so hard the question of like how much of this is true and how much of this is not mm. because of course you know like the the main character and I have shared thoughts you know there's there are like there are some phrases in the book that I wrote in my journal when I was 16 years old mm. you know so like I've had some of these some of these bits of the narrative rattling around in me forever wow so you know in some ways we share a mind a little bit me and the character and you know the narrator um the char- the narration being separate from the character is something that comes and goes throughout the book so it's a bit of a tricky book mm-hmm. to talk about in yes. terms of narration yes but um you know it it's not like you know i feel pretty strongly that 
this was not, this book was not like my attempt at sort of writing my, my true story. Do you know what I mean? This wasn't like me sort of sneaking in who I really okay, am because, into this okay, fictional I character. Understand. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, you used yeah. your imagination. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um, you question a lot in this book, you know, you question a mm-hmm. lot and, um, there's there's a part where I believe this is a quote because I scribbled it on a piece of paper. Why are we in a church? And I think that's a pretty bold question. That's a pretty bold <laughs> question. It is. I mean, yeah, it's very mm-hmm. confrontational. It's an interrogation. It's a confrontation. Um, mm. I mean, you know, it's like you're standing up to God or maybe not to God per se. Maybe I'm not sure about this, but maybe you're questioning how we how we handle someone's death and why it has to happen in the church and not somewhere else can you can you maybe elaborate on that yeah i think it's safe to say that um i'm comfortable in that book i'm comfortable questioning why we grieve the way we do um on you know that's like the 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 small part of the response the okay. bigger part of the response is that i think what I, a lot of what i'm doing in the book is questioning why we do anything the way we do okay <clears throat> you know like what you know like this sort of the the unraveling of claire the character to me is really important because you know she's she's like looking back at her years with this man that of course she loved but and you know of course they had a great relationship in some ways but it was not, it was not perfect. You know, like she remembers a sort of a more feminist past when she might have seen some red flags in some of his behavior and some of the decisions that she just kind of went along with, Hmm. you know? So I think, um, I think this is really a portrait of a woman coming to understand that she has accepted, she's accepted a lot of shit that's bad for her. And, you know, she might not have had a lot of resources or options for making other choices, but, you know, like she's, in a way, she's contributed to her own undoing here. And um, she's, she's not comfortable with it. And she's wondering if she can do something else Hmm. going forward. Well, you have this quote, she's here in this place, this place where he's not, and she is a widow. She has no husband. She has no job. She has no children. She's useless. She knows it. She lives in this tunnel of wind and sun and never ending vistas, a fly between the screen and the glass. Whoa. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I have felt similar but not necessarily at the funeral of, of, of someone I was in a relationship with, a romantic relationship with. I think every funeral I've been, you know, I think the fly between the screen and the glass would sum it up for me. I don't yeah. know why, but that just, I, I don't know. I think, you know, as you get older, you start to think about death and you have two choices. You can try to figure a way to make peace with that, or you can just let it scare you every day. And so this book is kind of, I recommend this book to anyone who wants to think about death because not thinking (laughs) about it just makes it, just makes it worse really. I know that we think that not thinking about it, not talking about it helps, but 
after reading this book and, and other issues that I'm dealing with, just again, because I'm 60 years old, you want to know, you want to know in a way mm. that you can handle whatever's coming. Right. Um, so, you know, um, I enjoy yeah. your observations. Um, like love <laughs> is not far from fear. To find love is to be forever in the debt of beauty. I love that. <laughs> really? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Tell me, tell me about you and your writing history before this book. A little. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> I mean, I could go back. I could go back to childhood. Um, you know, I always wrote, and it was something I did mostly in secret. Uh, it was really just for me. You know, I wrote. I wrote stories, I kept a diary, although I was never too interested in like narrating the events of my life in a diary. I think I used diaries more to work out, um, like to work out my thoughts or to work out um, relationship issues, interpersonal problems. Um, you know, that makes it sound like it was always very heavy and serious, but like years ago, um, my mom sent a journal of mine she'd found from when I was like 10 and it was me you know like so upset about things my sister had done you know so in my memory I might be making it sound like a little bit more advanced or sophisticated than it was mm. but um you know I always I always wrote in secret and then um you know I went off to school and I became a teacher and that's a it's just a really demanding job you know 50 hours a week, maybe 60 hours a week, just, you know, a classroom teacher. And uh, I still snuck in writing whenever I could because I just, I just had to. And then uh, I reached a point where I realized I wasn't done with school. So I went back to school and I got a PhD in philosophy. Wow. And Amazing. <clears throat> that must be really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty difficult. Um, but, you know, they, you know, they just make you jump through so many hoops to even get there. So, you know, by the time you're there, you know, you're pretty well committed, but you know, when you're going to get a PhD in philosophy, you, um, you, if, if you're, if you get accepted, they either give you full funding and say welcome, or they don't, you don't go at all. So I knew, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of money. I, I wasn't going to be able to pay for it myself. So I just applied all over the place and um, I got in at a school in Canada that had a great program that I liked and I'd be working with philosophers that I, you know, dreamed of studying with. So I went there and I, and I did that and I did all my coursework. Well, I wait, I all... don't, don't zoom past the philosophy <laughs> thing because I, I get the impression <laughs> that, well, there's like a real philosophical bent to your writing, you know? So I want to know right. who you read when you were in the philosophy PhD program that you think inspired and influenced you a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, the most the most obvious one is the is the French thinker Georges Bataille. Um, I focused on him mostly for my research. Um, he's got this concept of non knowledge that runs throughout his whole body of work. That um, you know, I made it my goal to to offer up a description of it, a book length description of it, because that had not yet been done. So I did that. Um, you know, and it's it's pretty involved research and work. But I ended up still writing fiction on the side. It was like, I think maybe I was, I kept trying to get rid of fiction or to get rid of certain kinds of writing that I thought were just useless or well, not useless. Like, of course, very important. You know, fiction has always been so important to me, but I don't know. I was afraid to call myself a writer 
for years. Maybe it's, really maybe it's a good thing. What do you, do you think you have to become like that person, you know, who's just so secure that that's their profession and that's their expertise? Don't, I mean, don't you think it's okay to write without having that? I'm not going to attack it and say it's arrogance, but you can also be an insecure writer, I think. Don't you think? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, my fear of calling myself a writer had nothing to do with being a writer professionally or making a living. It was a, I was afraid to admit to myself that I, that I thought I was an artist. Do you know, like that I might have a lifelong relationship with an art form that was going to be with me forever and that I wasn't going to be able to kick it. And in, in fact, I needed it to understand the world and myself and to deepen and enrich my relationship with the world and myself. And I was, that's what I was afraid of admitting, I think, you know, because it's like the stakes are higher to me, the stakes are higher for admitting that than they are for, Oh, I want to go make some money at it because you know, nobody makes money at it. Like that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The money was, thing. And, and I mean, you, okay. So what, Okay, so you're in a philosophy program at a very high level yeah. in Canada, but you're you basically have like the heart and 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 the imagination of a writer, and not to yeah. say that philosophy doesn't enable a lot of writing, but it's I'm sure a much more structured kind of writing. Um, yes. So how do you manage to bridge those things? Tell me. Well, I think they work really well together, and mm -hmm. I was always. I, I still am drawn to the, the thinkers in philosophy who, you know, who have big imaginations and whose engagement with literature fuels their, their philosophical thought. Um, you know, that's why I loved the, the, like the Bataille that I read, you know, he's, he was also a novelist himself and a poet and an essayist and, you know, his, his work sort of knew no bounds. And, um, you know, I've always, I've always, I guess, imagine that, that that's the way to be, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna take on ideas, and you're gonna take on artwork, like just, just try to do it all, you know, in like, push every question as far as it can be pushed and see what you get. And, but you know, do it with care. I, that's important to me with care and, and um, thought, you know, thought and focus and attention you have a lot of fun um, in this book you know your writing moves around and it moves at the pace of someone who's skipping there's a lot of fun there's a rhythm a fun rhythm the way you jump from thing to thing it's kind of mischievous oh what a beautiful thing to hear thank you um yeah i think you know i i gave myself permission at a certain point once i said to myself okay you know sure you're writing the dissertation and you're you know, trying to maybe have a career in philosophy if it's, if it's even possible. And at that point, it was pretty clear that it's not really possible. You know, there's, there are no jobs for philosophers. Um, but once I admitted to myself, okay, I'm actually writing a book, um, it was like the floodgates opened and I knew I wanted it to have a kind of dance-like movement, you know, and I, and I was able to say, okay, I want one section to swing, swing way out and back and up and then I want the next one to come in really close and be super tight and focused. Okay. And I want the next one to pull back out. Okay. And the next one to go back in. Okay. So if you wanted this book in, as you were working on it to have a dance-like motion, were you listening to music when you wrote? Often, yes. And what kind <clears> of <throat> I, did you use? 
oh, everything, you know, everything from like Vivaldi to um, like minimalist techno mm. to um, early hip hop to like contemporary women singer songwriters, you know, everything. Um, and I think, I think I might have in the early stages of writing it, I might have relied on music to help me conjure mood a little bit too much. Um, I tried to avoid doing that with my next book, which comes out later this year. But um, music is, it's just, it's a, it's a really important part of my life. And I actually, you may have noticed that, you know, there's some song lyrics woven throughout the book. There were more at the beginning because they just sort of, they worked their way into what I was writing and then I would have to go through and delete them and remove them, excise them. How long did it take for you to write that book? Um, like seven years. Oh seven my or eight God. Years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And what about the book you're working on now? I'm just trying to get a sense of how tortuous your creative process is because seven years is, is for, I, I mean, the book, the, the memoir that I got published whenever that was right. 2000 and the end of 2019, I think um, <clears throat> that took me a really long time, but not because of just that I was stuck with the writing. It, my life interfered with it. Yeah. Um, tell me about um, the seven years thing. What, like, why did it take seven years as opposed to two years or one year? Right. Yeah. Well, part of it was my life, you know, like having to work and being in school and then, you know, finishing school and <clears throat> having a baby. And, uh, you know, one thing that I don't actually don't talk about it that much, not because it's taboo or anything. I just I just end up sort of not remembering to mention it. But while I was writing the book, um, actually, the book was mostly written, but I had a I had a baby and um, she and I both nearly died in um childbirth well there were pretty serious complications and so um, it took me a long time after that to get back to writing it because it felt a little bit too heavy and I wasn't you know I hadn't yet processed everything I'd gone through and I just you know I couldn't I couldn't face the book I think okay so life life got in the way of the book if if you hadn't had yeah. such a life-changing occurrence you, you think you could have gotten through the book faster yes but it wouldn't have had um, the depth or the sensitivity or the nuance, I think that, um, that I, that I hoped that I hoped to get in there. You know, I needed, you know, life needed te to teach me some hard lessons. <laughs> hmm. um, you, yeah. you begin the book with an introduction that, that takes place or that takes us with you to Istanbul. And, um, yeah. did you teach there? I did a little bit. Um, I taught mostly to, let's see, um, to undergraduate students who were working on their conversational English. So I didn't actually didn't teach philosophy there. And I didn't teach, you know, as like a regular classroom teacher as I once had. Um, it was much more casual teaching that I did when I lived in Turkey. Mm. Um, you referred to, to the, um, the advantage of being there and you had some interest in an in, in interesting dichotomy between being, you know, marginalized and something else I forget, but it was interesting because it sums up 
um, the pleasures of, of people not, the, okay, I think it was the privilege and pleasure of being distanced, you know, from the people around yeah. you mm-hmm. that, that I think you say that only an artist or a writer can appreciate. Um, is, is that your ideal writing, um, you know, scenario that you're somewhere we don't know, mm-hmm. they don't know you because right. it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I, when I, so I wrote that introduction for the second edition of the book, um, because Clash said, you know, just do it, write an introduction. So I did. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when I wrote those words about like having the sort of luxury of like, sort of shattering coming apart and putting myself back together as I saw fit. um, I don't know if I knew what I was talking about. I was just saying something. (laughs) But (laughs) I do think there's something important that happens in those moments when you say, well, I won't generalize, I'll just say me, I'll just talk about me. You know, when I sit down to write um, and I'm really, you know, I'm really going to do it and I, you know, I can feel that I'm sort of entering that place of very deep focus um, and kind of self-abandonment. I, you know, I, in that moment, I am not anybody's friend. I'm not anybody's daughter. I'm not anybody's lover or mother or um, neighbor, you know, I, and it's, it's not selfish, like, oh, I only exist for myself. It's like, I just get to, I get to be suspended in space, Hmm. you know, away from all of that. And um, it's kind of paradoxical, because, you know, when I'm writing, I don't feel like I'm abandoning my responsibilities to people. It's like I'm able to be suspended from them and I can see them a little bit more clearly and I can contemplate them hmm. from a sort of place of detachment and um, I can understand them better. And in some ways through writing, I can kind of recommit myself to being a person who can exist in the world with other people. Hmm. Well, you also, mentioned, <laughs> you also mentioned that you translate, um, which is interesting. Because it's obvious, it's obvious to me that you're a translator, um, and, huh. and not in the literal. You know, oh, it's obvious that you're good at, at you know, <clears throat> translating things from one language to another. I have no idea, but mm-hmm. you're good at translating something, for example, like death into life. And you, mm. you, you see, yeah, you just seem to have a certain comfort with taking something and saying, and now I'm I'm going to compare it to something that it doesn't have any obvious similarity to <laughs> and it's all oh. it's all going to come together and make sense um can you tell me about translation yeah um you mean translation in that in that bigger sense well of... you can pick up wherever you'd like but yeah curious about you know how you translate i'm interested in translation literally translation but i'm of course interested in how it influences your writing too yeah Well, I was doing, you know, as I was finishing up that book, you know, like really at the tail end of it, I was doing a pretty big translation project at the time. So literal translation was probably on my mind um, more, you know, at that point. Um, I haven't done any translation work in a little while. But I do, the thing I love about translation is that it's kind of like solving a puzzle, you know, Um, and even that makes it sound a little bit too, uh, too much like there's a perfect answer, you know, because often with translation, there really isn't a perfect or right answer. You know, you try to do justice to the spirit of the work and um, all of the technical details of the work, but 
you know, you know that you, there's no way you could get it exactly right. You just hope for the best. And what languages, um, um, what languages do you translate? Just from French to English and just academic philosophy. So, you know, I, I haven't touched anything like poetry or fiction because I, I don't think I have the ability, I, but I can, I can work with academic French, philosophical well, that's like really difficult. <laughs> it's really super difficult to translate from French to English. I mean, I mean, of course, you know, a lot of translators do it. Um, but, you know, the French have a very French way of seeing the world. <laughs> so it's difficult to translate that into to, into English, right? Yeah, well, I mean, any translation task is really difficult. But, you know, even within one language, there are so many, there are so many other languages. So like, when I was doing, I was doing that translation work, my mother in law, who is French, who, um, who now lives in the US, but you know, was born and raised in France. Um, she saw the document that I was translating, because I had left it part of it out on the table. And you know, French is her her native tongue. And she looked at the pages that I was translating from French to English. And she said, I have no idea what is happening on these pages. And I said, well, I mean, it's, it is, a, it is an academic text. And she said, yeah, I mean, I know what all these words mean, but I have no idea what any of them mean. Like none of this makes any sense. And I realized, okay, I'm not crazy for, for saying I can only translate, you know, this very particular instantiation of French. It's I can't like, do all like French, Google Translate, you know? Google Translate right. versus like, you know, I mean, I understand what you're talking about because there's levels of translation. There's the most basic level, which completely sucks and doesn't capture any nuance or, mm -hmm. you know, innuendo or preferences that might exist in the language when, when you choose words. There are some words that are preferred. You have choices. And then there are very subtle yeah. differences between those words, and it's difficult for you if you're not necessarily a native speaker to understand the unique value yeah. of every word. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, you but you're you're someone who's translated a lot of work, right? I would not say a lot of work, but I mean, I've I've done it, and I hope to do more. Actually, I really hope to do a lot more. Um, you know, when there's more time, and you know, when maybe COVID is not dominating everything if that if that happens so hmm. yeah i would like to do more well um i just yeah. have a couple more questions for you and that, and i guess sure. it could be one question actually what <laughs> tell me about this book that you're working on um is it fiction well we're not sure what to call it yet we're not sure how to describe it um i think i think we're going to end up calling it auto fiction so um, it's, you know, whether or not it's true is, is less the, the focus, um, but it is, so it's a little bit similar to the first book in that it's broken up into 50 sections. You know, the first book is 24 sections, but other than that, I think it's a pretty violent departure from the first book. Um, it's, at first I thought it was essays, and then I realized this is not essays. And then I thought maybe it was letters. And then I realized it's not quite letters. Um, so it's these 50, these 50 brief sections. Each one is addressed to you. And you is many different things.
things and people and places and forces. Are you writing in the second person? Yeah. Because I was, <laughs> yeah. just, I was just joking about that with uh, Beth Lissick the other night uh, during her interview. <laughs> oh, my God. You're actually writing in the second person. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I know it's such a, like, it's such a big no-no. So many people hate it. You know, they really hate it. I'm not a big it. fan of it, but <laughs> I'm open. So, I mean, so far, let's just say so far, I'm not. A yeah. Fan. I mean, I really felt there was no other way to write this book in part because it's, it is addressing so many different entities um, and they can't all be named because because it's just not possible. Um, I know this sounds, this sounds kind of crazy. So there's a part of the book, a thread of it, that to me is about someone who feels as though she's trapped in a relationship with the universe that is sexually exploitative. Hmm. And um, hmm. she sees, and she sees the universe um, sort of taking form in particular people and in particular places and in particular interactions. Hmm. And um, she doesn't know, she doesn't know what it is that's happening. And she doesn't know what the thing is that keeps appearing to her, but it is a thing. And so the only thing she can say is you, because there's no other name for it. Um, so it starts, I mean, it starts from, starts from there. And the book itself is called, What Are You? And hmm. To me, it's a title that, that works on multiple levels, because um, I don't fully know what the form is. I don't fully know what form I'm working in. So I'm also asking the book, what are you? And the, the book is really a record of struggle of someone trying, trying to determine this thing that keeps appearing to her and that keeps fucking with her life and everything in her. Uh, what, what are you? Wow. And why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I want to read it. <laughs> Even if it's in second person. Yeah, well, yeah um, I do. No, it's now I understand why. Well, you know, it's interesting to talk to writers and learn about what they did before they wrote and things that weren't related to writing because the whole philosophical thing with you, it's coming, it's just coming, you know, into focus more and more um, that you like to go on these philosophical twists and turns and epiphanies mm -hmm. and investigate stuff. And it's interesting. Yeah. And how you work on multiple levels and stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that there's not a huge place for, for this kind of work, you know, but, um, you know, I just trust, I'll keep doing it, you know, and I, and I'll always have other, you know, odd jobs on the side or even big jobs on the side, you know, whatever I need to do to make some money. But, um, you know, I just, I just kind of trust that, like, if I can do justice to the work, then I'll just keep trying to do justice to the work. Mm see where see where it gets me yeah <laughs> yeah i hear you i feel you um listen um i'm from nowhere is certainly without doubt one of the most emotionally demanding books that i've probably ever read um yeah wow and yeah without a doubt you know wow. um it's not the kind of book you read for fun it's the kind of book <laughs> no it's not it's the kind of book that you read because you must, you know, it's that time to stop avoiding oh. it, down with it. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, really, I can't think of a better compliment. Um, and it's hard to know, you know, when you write an emotionally demanding book, 
it's really hard to know if it's going to find readers because again, like who wants an emotionally demanding experience, but I know that that's what I need. Like that's what actually fills me up when I have encounters with art. It's, it's the things that, uh, that really forced me to stop in my tracks. Hmm. Well, what can I say except thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for, you know, introducing your work to me. And um, thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Maybe we can do this again when you finish your next book. I would love to. Yeah, it comes out in November. So it's actually not not too long from now. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. This was an absolute delight. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.